Amen. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, that's where we are this morning. If you want to go ahead and, and turn there, I do encourage you to bring your own copy of the scriptures for this series because we've got long readings, and I've, I've got them all on the screen, but um, sometimes it's good to have your own copy there because I may or may not read all of them. I actually cheated you out of five verses last Sunday. Uh, I realized that I was supposed to read all the way. I didn't realize it until I started working on this week's. But I was supposed to read all the way through verse 16. We did chapter 2. I was supposed to read all the way through verse 16, and I read through verse 11. And so you, you missed five verses of Romans. Did you, did, you feel, did you feel that this week? Okay. Um, but it's okay because what he says in those five verses is are really weird. It's like he says, basically, the Gentiles will not be held responsible for a law they did not possess, but many of them still obey the law, not because they had the law, but because of the natural inclinations of your heart. And if you obey the law because of the natural inclinations of your heart, then that's the same as having the law. So that's what he says. Uh, and you're probably okay with me skipping it. <laughs> so it's a little confusing. We are going to be in verse 17 uh, today, and I'm going to start reading. Uh, well, not yet. I've, I need to talk Halloween first. So I'm going to start reading verse 17. Let's, can you throw that chart up for me real quick? Marker, I want, I want to share something with you. I did not want to interrupt worship for a long announcement on Halloween. I'll, I'll interrupt Romans for a long announcement on Halloween. Um, I, I got this in my inbox this week from Lifeway Research, and this is what pastors encourage their church members to do on Halloween. And so I was just kind of curious where I fell. And if you go down to the bottom, you know, 13% of pastors encourage their congregants to avoid Halloween completely. Um, we're probably not one of those. Uh, but we got a, a banner out front about a Halloween party. So I don't fall in that 13%. Uh, 34%, this one was surprising to me, 34% of pastors encourage uh, their congregants to hand out gospel tracts to trick-or-treaters. Um, don't do that. Uh, well, I mean, I, maybe you could do that. Maybe uh, I don't know anybody whose salvation story starts with, well, we got home from Halloween, and I emptied the candy out, and there was a gospel track there. And it may, there may be somebody. Somebody's going to come say, I got saved because somebody didn't give me candy, but they gave me a gospel track. Um, the, so I'm not in that category either. And if it's in replacement of candy, that's just mean. So, I mean, like, I'm, I'm cool with gospel tracks and candy. But if, if it's in replacement of candy, that's just cruel. 58% um, encourage their congregants to build relationships with neighbors who trick or treat. I can get on board with that. 71% encourage their congregants to attend an alternative church event. I don't know if I fit there either because uh, I don't know that ours is on alternative church event. Like we don't disguise our Halloween party as a fall festival or a harvest festival or any of those things. We just call it a Halloween party because that's pretty much what it is. And every two or three years I get an email from somebody in the community like, aren't you supporting the occult and all that kind of stuff? I'm like, no, it doesn't mean any of that anymore. It just means kids dressing up and getting candy. And we're providing them a safe venue to do that. And so that's coming up next Sunday. It's at 5 o'clock next Sunday. And in order for it to be successful, the reason we call it a Halloween party is because that's what the community calls it. And we wanted the community to come to our Halloween party. So we said, if we want the community to come to our Halloween party, then let's call it what it is. Because if we call it trunk or treat, a lot of the community is going to be going, what? Trunk or what? What are you talking about? Or if we call it the fall festival, wait, what, what are you talking about? Is this like a farming congregation? You know, so we do, we're just going to call it, you know, come to the Halloween party. And in order to make it a successful event, we need several things. We need more candy stations. 
we're only six away, which is awesome, but it means we're still six away. So we've got 44 people who have volunteered to host candy stations right now, but we still need six more. Uh, candy station just means you're willing to decorate your car or not decorate your car. We're not, that's not a requirement, but you're willing to kind of set up and, and hand out candy to the trick-or-treaters that come through. We need more candy because the, we figured out a couple years ago that there's no way uh, you can provide enough candy for everybody that's going to come to your candy station. We asked the candy stations to provide candy, but we said there's no way you can provide enough. And so we do this surplus candy. That's what everything that's being collected right now is surplus candy. And there'll be a volunteer that comes around with a little wagon and delivers surplus candy to everybody that runs out of candy during the event. And they will run out of candy. And then the last thing we need is more people. So we want you to invite your friends. We want you to invite your neighbors. We want you to invite your children, your grandchildren, whoever it is. Like We want people to come to this event. We're anticipating over 1,000 folks. Um, and we, it's going to be a big thing. And we want people to come. We want people to have a good time. It's basically, we're throwing a party for our community. That's basically what it comes down to. We used to couch it in terms of evangelism. Maybe some evangelism takes place. It's really just a party for our community. That's what we're wanting to do here with Not So Scary. So that's coming up next Sunday. All right. Now let's get into Romans. Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 17. I'm going to, I'm going to teach this kind of like I taught the last couple which you may have liked and you may have not liked. But if you didn't like it, you're stuck with it for one more Sunday. Uh, I'm going to read through the whole text. So we're going verse 17 all the way through, through uh, verse 20 of chapter 3. And I'm, well, I'm going to read through most of the text. And I want to be kind of, how do we apply what happened then to, to then? And then at the end, I want to give some takeaways of how we apply it to what's happening today. Because... What Paul says to them then still applies to us today. Because we're still in this section of the letter where Paul's trying to convince the Jewish believers that they're not any better than the Gentile believers. They're not any more special than the Gentile believers. And, and believe it or not, we still need to convince some, some Christians that they're not any better than any other group of Christians. We, we sometimes have to convince some evangelical Christians that you're not any better than the mainline Christians. Or some charismatic Christians that you're not any better than the non-charismatic Christians. Or some reformed Christians that you're not any better than the non-reformed Christians. Or, or some Catholic Christians that you're not any better than the Protestants. So it like, we, is this still relevant to today? Because Christianity still has a problem with some groups of us feeling like we're better than other groups. And so Paul's addressing this with the Jewish believers. These are Jewish, this is not, these are Jewish Christians. And he's comparing it to Gentile Christians. And he's still addressing these Jewish Christians. And so he says in verse 17, let's start reading. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and you boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of the little children because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, if you didn't pick up on it, Paul's using sarcasm here. And I loved it. I, I'm, it, it makes me feel good that, a, that an author of scripture uses sarcasm makes me feel better about myself. But, I mean, he's kind of he's picking on it like, oh, you think you're an instructor. You think you're a guide to the light. You think you're, you know, leading the little children and all that. Well, you then who teach others, 
do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And this is the same thing he said last week. Like, you, you preach against sin. You think you got the law and that makes you special. Well, that don't make you special. And you preach against the sins of the Gentiles and you think because you don't do the sins of the Gentiles, that makes you special. But you're doing the same stuff as the Gentiles. The sins that you preach about are the very sins that you are committing. And again, that's not just a Jewish believer problem from the first century. That's a 21st century problem for, for modern day Christians. I mean, we do the same stuff. I just I finished a book um, that somebody recommended to me called Jesus and John Wayne, which is a really interesting read. Uh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but it was basically like a history of evangelical Christianity from the 1940s to the present day. And so I, I knew all these characters, or I knew, excuse me, I knew most of these characters. And so as I'm listening to this book, I listened to it, I didn't read it, so I don't know if that counts. But I, a lot of times I say I read something, I listened to it. But as I'm listening to the history, there's story after story of pastors who were famous for preaching against a specific sin and then got caught doing what? that specific sin and so it's it's a common problem a lot of times the stuff that we condemn the most is the stuff that we struggle with the most that's that's the stuff that we're hardest on so he you know he's saying to the jews like you you preach against all this stuff and you're doing the same stuff so don't think you're any special or you're any better christians because you have the law or because you preach against the gentiles or because you're circumcised Verse 25, or tw yeah, 25. Circumcision has value. Well, let me pause right here real quick. Because um, I said I was going to teach this as just like the Bible for dummies. Like if you've never, never read the Bible before and you're reading in the New Testament, this is weird, <laughs> okay? Like if, you, if you've never read the Bible before and you get to the teaching in the New Testament about circumcision, you, I got to think, you got to be thinking like, what's he talking about there? Like that's, it's not circumcision like I think. Like, I don't think it's what I think it is, is it? I mean, this is like, like a, this is a metaphor for something. It's not. Um, this is exactly what you think it is. It was a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. And the Jews thought that made them a little bit better than the Gentiles because they had it. And so this is what he tells them. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, it's become as though you've not been circumcised. So then... If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, so there's that argument that I told you we skipped. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision. You're a lawbreaker. A person's not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Search a person's praise is from other people, not from God. Real simple. It's not what happens on the outside that makes you righteous. It's not even what, I mean, this is, this is like, what he says here is mind-blowing to a Jewish believer. Because that, that, what makes me a Christian, what makes me right, what makes me better than the Gentiles is the fact that we have the law and circumcision. And in this little paragraph here, he basically said, neither one of those things matter. Neither one of those things make you any better than another group of Christians. Now, then he kind of backtracks just for a minute 
because he is a Jew, if you remember. He says, what advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Well, well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Well, not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. He puts it in parentheses. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Well, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? Well, why not say, as some slanderously claim, that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What in the world's he saying? I appreciate the amen, but what in the world is he saying right here? Like when you when you read through this, especially like this is the first time you're reading through this, you're like, what what in the world, what are we talking about here? Because it's almost like he's arguing with himself, and it's it's a pretty complex argument that he's making here. And it makes sense to some and it doesn't make sense to others. And it's like, what in the world are you saying? And it, it's kind of a good place. I'm gonna come back to it in, in just a little bit when I get to the application. Um but I, I first want to address this idea of what happens when you're reading a big passage of scripture. What happens when you run across a part that doesn't make any sense to you? Uh, you, know, you just because it's written to Jewish believers two thousand years ago in ancient Rome. There's going to be some parts of it that don't translate easily to to Western Christians living twenty centuries after this happened. There's going to be parts of it that we go. What's he talking about? And he's making arguments that they would have been made in their day and time. They would have been very familiar with them because culturally they're making the same arguments, but we're not as familiar with them. What do you do when you run across a passage of Scripture that is confusing to you? I'm going to give you some pastoral advice. Skip it. That's what you do with it. Skip it. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. Like you just, if you run across something that's confusing, you're like, I don't, I don't know what in the world that means. Just keep reading. Because the Bible as a whole was not confusing. Yeah, there are parts of the Bible that are confusing. But as a whole, it's not confusing. And if you keep reading, it will eventually clear itself up and you'll get the main gist of the passage. You may at some point want to come back and consult a commentary. You may want to Google it, which is more dangerous than a consulting a commentary because there's a bunch of weird stuff on the Internet. But you, know, so you, or you may want to ask your pastor who will Google it and then send you an answer. But, you know, it's like you may want to do the research at some point and say, what in the world is he talking about there? And try to make some sense of it. But when you're just reading for, for application and reading for understanding, I say just skip it and keep reading because the Bible will eventually clear itself up and you'll know exactly what he means. Because Paul clears himself up in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Talking about the Jews. Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. He's, he's clear now, right? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He quotes a bunch of other Old Testament passages here, and he says in verse 19, uh, well, verse 20, let's skip down to verse 20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's his point. 
Read that last sentence again. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It took him 81 verses to get there. <laughs> but he finally got there. You know, this is the same guy that preached one time and preached so long, guy fell out and died. Uh, fell out of the window and died. That's in Acts. But it took him 81 verses to say that. That's what he's been trying to say all three chapters for three weeks. That's when we finally got to that. And that's the main point. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So how do we apply that to today? What does that mean for today? I got, I got four takeaways. Okay. Um, and this is, this is like, you try to understand what it's saying to them then. And then you try to bring it forward and say, well, what is it saying to us today? What can we learn from everything Paul has said in the first three chapters of this letter? And here's number one. There's no group of Christians any better than another group of Christians. There's no church any better than another church. Um, he's trying to say this to the Jewish believers because they felt like they were a little bit better than the Gentile believers because they had the law and they had circumcision and they thought that made them a little bit more special. And he's saying, no, neither one of those things makes you any more special. Just because you have those things doesn't make you any more special. And so there's no group of Christians that's any better than another group of Christians. Even if people say, yeah, but our church is, uh, uh, like, our church really takes the Bible seriously. I don't care. Yeah, but, but, but our church has heartfelt worship. Our church raises hands a lot more in worship. We, we really, like, we really feel the spirit more. But, uh, but our church is more spirit-filled. We actually practice the gifts of the spirit, and you don't. But our church is, is uh, really centered on doctrine. We, we take doctrine seriously, and, and we, we really take that. Our church is, is all about discipleship. I mean, it's all, we are very serious about discipleship. I mean, like, we can, all the qualifiers we can put on it. There's no group of Christians that are any better than another group of Christians. I mean, this goes whether you're charismatic, non-charismatic, Protestant, mainline, all of them, reformed, non-reformed, all this stuff, all the qualifiers we put as to who has a true church or a real church or a real believer, we're just comparing one group of sinners to another group of sinners. There's no hierarchy in this thing. You know, Church of Christ Christians aren't better than Baptist Christians, and, and Pentecostal Christians aren't better than Presbyterian Christians, and Lutheran Christians aren't better than Methodist Christians. Did you notice what all of those groups had in common? Christian. <laughs> They're all a bunch of sinners that realize they need a Savior, and that's the thing that pulls them together. And Paul's trying to emphasize to the, to the Jews and the Gentiles, you need to be, what pulls you together, in this instance, what he's saying, what pulls you together is your sin. You're all a bunch of sinners. Nobody's special, so cool it on the comparison game. You're just comparing one group of sinners to another group of sinners, and no one will be declared righteous by the stuff that we think makes us special. Whatever our little doctrines are, whatever our little practices are in worship, whatever we do just a little bit differently, however cool our worship set is, whatever our website looks different, our, it doesn't matter. We are all the same in the eyes of God. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. So stop the comparison game. Second, there's no outward symbol that makes you a Christian. Now, we got all kinds of outward symbols of Christianity. We got all kinds of little clues as to whether or not somebody's a Christian. Like, what kind of, 
kind of stickers do they have on the back of their car? Or what kind of, what kind of books do they have on their bookshelf? Or what kind of music are they listening to when you get in the car? Like, what's it tuned to? Are they listening to Way FM? Or, you know, what, how do they dress? Or what's on their, do they have scripture in their social media uh, bio? Or, you know, the, the, like what, we have all these outward symbols of what makes somebody a Christian. None of that, we know none of that makes us a Christian. But to really bring it home the way Paul was trying to bring it home to the Jews, they thought circumcision was the outward symbol that made them a Christian. And, and that, many of them would say, if you don't do that, they would tell the Gentiles, if you don't do that, then you're not really a Christian. I mean, if you don't have this outward symbol, you're not really a Christian. How, how in the world they knew, I have no idea. I, I shouldn't even ask that question. But I, I, I just, just I, anyway. Um, that was the outward symbol, and that is a weird outward symbol, okay? You know what the symbol is in the New Testament? It's baptism. I mean, that becomes one of the symbols of Christianity is baptism. And that's an outward symbol as to whether or not you know someone as a Christian, as to whether or not they're baptized. So let me do something real quick that uh, you're not going to like. Well, some of you won't like it, some of you will. Go back to chapter 2, verse 25, and I want to read verses 25 through 30, and I want to change a few words. I want to change circumcision to baptism, and I want to change the law to the New Testament, and I want to change Jew to Christian, and I want to read this passage again, and I know you're going to be like, you should not add or take away from the scriptures. This is just an illustration. All right, I'm trying to take what Paul said to one group of people 2,000 years ago and bring it forward to another group of people today. Listen to this. Baptism has value if you observe the New Testament teaching. But if you break the New Testament teaching, you've become as though you have not been baptized. So then, if those who are not baptized keep the New Testament... Will it not be regarded as if they were baptized? The one who is not baptized physically and yet obeys the New Testament will condemn you. Even though you have the New Testament and baptism, you are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Christian who is one only outwardly. Nor is baptism merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Christian who is one inwardly and baptism is baptism of the heart by the Spirit. Now, depending on how you were raised, it may be hard to hear that. Because you're like, wait, wait a minute, you're taking the very thing that I thought made me a Christian. That baptism makes me a Christian, and you're saying that that doesn't matter. No, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying it doesn't matter. Read chapter 3, verse 1. He's not saying he doesn't matter. He's just trying to put it in its proper perspective. What he's saying is there's, nothing, there's no outward symbol that makes you a Christian. Baptism is an outward symbol of interchange. If, if you are baptized, but your heart is not given to Christ, it, you're just getting wet. You're just getting dunked. That, the, the baptism loses all of its meaning if there's no inward change that takes place. The best example I can give to it is like this, the wedding ring. What does that tell you? When you see my wedding ring, what do you know? You know that I've made a commitment to somebody. You know that I'm married. But if I take it off, which is hard to do because I ate a lot of salt last night, apparently. Uh, if I take it off, am I still married? 
Yeah, I'm still married. Just because I took the, just the outward symbol doesn't make me married. Is the outward symbol important? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely important. But what happened when I took that vow, when I made a vow to my wife, it was more than just an outward symbol. It was more than just a ceremony. There was a heart that was committed to that. It was an inward change that took place. And, and it's the same with any. There's no outward symbol that makes you a Christian. The only thing that makes us a Christian is faith in Jesus Christ. Takeaway number three. I got to speed these up. <laughs> the rules don't make us righteous. Um, again, this one may be hard to hear depending upon how you grew up because there were a lot of denominations that put a lot of emphasis on the rules. The rules were how we knew who was in and who was out. The rules were how we knew whether or not we were righteous or worthy. The rules were whether or not we knew we could take communion. The rules were, were whether or not we knew somebody was really saved or they just prayed a prayer. Or whether somebody was really a Christian or they just got, they got baptized. You know, like that, that, the rules was the, the define. that's how we determined who was right and who was wrong, was the rules. And Paul's argument here, and he's going to make it all throughout the book, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on this one. Paul's argument is the rules don't make you righteous, even if you could obey them all. And I think Paul's argument would be more along the lines of, you don't even obey the rules. You who keep the rules, you who make a big deal of this, you who say it's important, you don't even keep the rules. None of us keep the rules. None of us obey them perfectly. There's not a single person who obeys all the rules perfectly. You are all condemned. But even if we could keep them perfectly, even if we could obey every single rule, cross every T, dot every I, even if we were perfect in our righteousness, Paul says that still doesn't make you righteous. The rules do not have the ability to keep us righteous. That's what he says at the end. That's his conclusion. There will be no one declared righteous in the sight, in God's sight, by the works of the law. For a Jewish listener, this was impossible to hear because the law was everything. You spent your whole life trying to obey the law, your whole life trying to do what the law requires, your whole life trying to do the law requires so that you'll be made righteous in God's sight. And he says, that's not what makes you righteous. So the rules don't make us righteous. But number four, we still need rules. Uh, we, we, you, don't, you, don't, you can't just throw it out and say, well, we don't need any rules then. Because I think that's one of the reasons that uh, the, the denomination I grew up in, I think one of the reasons we shied away from Romans, we're like, goodness, if people really catch this grace thing, gosh, it's just going to be chaos. I mean, if people know that God has forgiven them and you're just made righteous by faith and not by rules, well, gosh, that people are going to do whatever they want. They're just going to throw the rules out and, and it's just going to be absolute immorality and chaos and it's going to be terrible. And uh, Paul would say, no, that, that, that's, you're taking that. The, the part that I said that was confusing back there, that's actually what he's saying in that part. Because he's anticipating that some people are going to overcorrect and take this to its logical conclusion and say, well, if that's the case, if God's grace is just going to be poured out whenever we sin, then let's just keep sinning so that God will just keep being graceful. Let's just keep doing evil so that good may, may result. And Paul says, that's nonsense. Don't overcorrect this. And that's what we tend to do in Christianity. We say, the rules don't make us righteous. And we're like, amen, the rules don't make us righteous, so we don't need any rules. No, we just, thank goodness, the rules, we just forget it. We can just do whatever we want, and God's just going to save us in the end. And whew, that's a whole lot easier. No, there's a reason for the rules, and he says it right here. He said it at the end. He said, no one's declared righteous by the works of the law, but what did he say the rules do? Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So the, the rules aren't there to make us righteous. 
They're there to make us conscious of our sin. And to me, that's a bigger challenge with preaching Roman in the 21st century than maybe it was with preaching Romans in the 20th century, is being conscious of our sin. The way I would describe it is, I think, uh, I don't know what time frame to put on it, 30, 40 years or whatever, but a generation ago, the challenge would have been convincing people that they're good enough to receive God's grace. Because people knew they were sinners. Oh, they knew they were sinners. The church hammered that. It was hellfire and damnation every Sunday. I know I'm a sinner, and I know I'm in trouble. The problem was trying to convince people that God's grace was still big enough to cover their sin, that they were good enough. No matter what they'd done, they were still good enough to receive God's grace. I think in the 21st century, the problem is convincing people we're bad enough to need it. Because we're not as conscious of our sin. We don't talk about sin as much anymore. And um, we know we're worthy of God's grace because we've grown up with people telling us we're worthy, we're worthy, we're worthy, we're worthy. So we know we're worthy of God's grace. Our problem is sometimes believing that we even need it or that it's necessary. And where we're going to go in the rest of this letter is Paul's going to say, oh, oh, trust me, it's necessary. (laughs) We absolutely need God's grace. Because we are all sinners. That's what he says in Romans 3. We are all sinners in need of grace. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And next week he'll talk about how that, how we accept that Savior and how we truly become made righteous. I want to say a word of prayer for us. And i got one more thing to mention and we'll be dismissed. Um, I'll, the invitation is always open. And what I mean, the invitation to follow Christ is always open. So if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never repented and been baptized, never confessed Him as Lord, um, all you got to do is fill out one of those cards that are on the seat in front of you or fill out one online. Um, catch one of us after services. Message one of our staff. We'd be happy to, to walk you through that. Let me pray for us. i got one more thing to mention. Father, I'm thankful for uh, what we read in the book of Romans. I'm I'm thankful for Paul's, uh, I'm thankful for his intelligence, the way he rations and reasons through some of these things, although sometimes he confuses me, but I'm still thankful for his intelligence. I'm thankful for his bluntness. Um, I'm thankful for his courage to call out his own people. He was to call out folks that he was a part of for years and to say um, that they're sinners just like everybody else. And so, God, I, I pray you you help us to remember that as we go throughout our lives, that help keep us humble. Help keep us humble to remember that, that we're no better than anybody else. And uh, this church is no better than any other church. And uh, our sin is just as bad as anybody else's sin. And uh, help us to remember that your grace has saved us and that your son Jesus has made us right, not anything that we've done that's made us right, but it's what your son Jesus has done that that makes us right. And we thank you for that. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.